Hey, it says it's showtime. Oh, we're live. Hi. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Joanne, uh, Science Goddess on Twitter and uh, Read Science, along with my co-host, Jeff Schomeyer, who's over in Maryland. I'm sitting in Illinois. And today our guest is Anissa Ramirez, who I've had the great pleasure to speak with before with the National Science Teacher Association. Um, we talked about a previous book of hers called Newton's Football. Well, you co-wrote that one. Right. And I think we also talked about your book, uh, Save Our School, Save Our Science, sorry. Save Our Science, right. Save Our Science. But it was talking about science in schools and, yeah, right. very important. And But today we're going to talk about a book that I, I don't have the physical copy because my university shut down and locked it away. So, yay, she's all holding of us her. Show we the can book. all hold. Yeah, <laughs> and the e version. So, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so it's called The Alchemy of Us How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. So, it's about material science. So it's a very fun book to read and a wonderful distraction in these days. Um, well, let's let's tell everybody a little bit about you, Anissa. Anissa, sorry. Um, you are an award-winning scientist and science communicator, and you are passionate about getting the general public excited about science, and I have been watching you for years do this, so this is wonderful. Uh, you graduated from Brown University and then earned your doctorate in materials, science, and engineering from Stanford. And um, basically, you've, you've written a few books, Alchemy of Us, is your new one, Save Our Science, and Newton's Football. You've written for Forbes, Time, The Atlantic, Scientific American, so on and so on, where all our great authors happen to write. So let's say you've given a TED Talk, and you help with uh, some television shows, right? So right. Right. yeah, we're really glad you could be here today, because we really know how much you love science, and, and your book was really great to read. Thank you. Well, it's great to be here. Okay. Joanne, your introduction today reminded me so much of, of the old television program, This Is Your Life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anissa, the, the, the subtitle on your book is How Humans and Matter Transform One Another, which I thought was a very, a very provocative idea. And I thought maybe we could start by trying to understand what that meant for you and, and how you use that. And I wanted to do that by starting with this quotation from um, an early chapter in the book called Capture that I thought was also really provocative. And then I'd like for you to, to tell us why that shows up in a chapter on photographic film and chemistry and all of the things that go on in there, because there were so many connections in that story. And I was hoping that would give us. so. In, in there, you wrote, by the middle of the 19th century, Frederick Douglass was the most photographed human being on the planet. Isn't uh, that amazing? I, that, I, was, that was amazing. I didn't know it either. Yeah. More, more than Lincoln, more than Grant. And uh, he did that, and you know, he did that for many reasons. Um, he was trying to change what people thought an African-American should look like. This mm -hmm. is during the time of slavery. So if he had a picture of himself that looked very dignified and very stately, he was of also of mixed birth. So he actually had some European features to him. People wouldn't, wouldn't be able to uh, look at his image and maybe see a little bit of themselves and, say, and look at his humanity. So he was using photography as a way to uh, break down stereotypes of what we should think about for African-Americans. And he used photography as that tool. 
And uh, photography is still very much a tool to break down stereotypes. So yes. I thought that was a very smart move of him. But also in that same chapter, you gave us a, a web of connections that started with uh, the preacher who was working on uh, backgrounds, flexible backgrounds for backing. And that was sort of your main main point. And how you got from there through Frederick Douglass. But I loved hearing about the Polaroid, Polaroid problem in South Africa. And I'd like yeah. to touch on that and the rise of the Polaroid revolutionary workers movement. Group. Yeah. Movement. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And, and what that was all about. It's like, that was so such a rich, rich discussion and all those connections. Well, it was almost like black and white in an image. Uh, you yeah. see something that's just uh, um, innocent, a desire to take a picture of a horse with Edward Mybridge, a desire mm -hmm. uh, for pictures for Sunday school, which, which, which was what Hannibal Goodwin was uh, embarking on. Mm -hmm. He ended up being in a contentious legal debate uh, with uh, George Eastman. And he found that photography was not just this simple life. Uh, that, uh, and so then I talk about how photography also had another battle, which was a cultural battle. And uh, it ends up that um, there was a very young woman who was working at Polaroid in, in, in Massachusetts and just going about her business of developing the, the new technology of instant photography. And while she's going to lunch with her then boyfriend, Ken Williams, her name was Carolyn Hunter, uh, they see on the bulletin board a mock-up that says, uh, Department of the Mines, Republic of South Africa. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. she knew a little bit about South Africa and just asked, you know, I wonder what they're doing in South Africa. And what they found <laughs> is that uh, even though it was a simple technology, it was actually significant in this oppressive, oppressive regime. Uh, before the age of GPS tracking, if you wanted to monitor yes. and control where people can move, Black South Africans had to carry a passbook. Passbook told people where they could go, where they could visit. And in the center of it was a photograph that was developed by Polaroid. Yeah. So, came, yeah, that's right. So the, the Polaroid cameras, the Polaroid cameras that we were all loving on the, on the, on the, you know, on our side of the, on the planet in the seventies and the eighties, we didn't know that on the other side of the planet, that it, this was actually being used to control people's whereabouts. And that the, the problem or one of the problems in here that got tied into this telling of the story is something that, um, I think it's been known for much longer, but I only read about in the last few years when uh, people have been talking about biases in various unexpected places that color film right. has, has a bias, a significant bias in it yes. that people don't realize because of uh, cultural uh, baggage and upbringing. And right. that, <clears throat> that uh, color film had trouble reproducing dark skin tones. That's right. Because the people who developed it wanted to optimize it. And, um, oh, I can't remember her name, but there was even uh, the, the a, model. The, yeah, the Shirley card. The Shirley, Shirley card. Yeah, right, mm -hmm. who was a, uh, so she, this is about Kodak film. Yes. Right? And uh, the film was designed by engineers and who they were testing were people who were around them. And so uh, they didn't do a broad search and look for diverse skin tones. I've spoken to some of them and they said that they also went to Rochester because that's where it uh, was located. So they went to the schools in Rochester and also tested the film on the students in Rochester. But if you think about the demographics of students mm -hmm. in Rochester, the same problem, you're going to be measuring the same and optimizing the film for a small demographic. Yeah. So, uh, so 
that formulation stayed that way until a long, for a long time until uh, some African-American mothers noticed that when the classroom picture came uh, and their children, black children were sitting with white children, that they didn't come out well in when both of them were sitting right next to each other. And so that indicated that there was some, uh, there was some bias in the film that it was tailored for lighter skin and not for darker skin. And that's, that's an important part of, of there, there's been a fair number of, of these uh, unexpected biases that have been revealed in algorithms and computer mm -hmm. algorithms where mm -hmm. somebody says, oh, let's just take an arbitrary large collection of photographs that we can get our hand on. Right. And it turns out that the source for those tend to be biased maybe towards African-Americans, maybe toward white Europeans, mm. whatever. But um, those are so so deep that it's awfully hard to get at them sometimes. But do you think we're doing a better job of, of discovering some of those things, addressing some of those issues? Well, I think what I was trying to get across in The Alchemy of Us is that technology is just an extension of humanity. And mm -hmm. whatever cultural biases are within humanity, technology, we always think technology is this pure thing and it's separate. No, it, it inherits what its mothers and fathers give it, which is us. So uh, first thing is we have to notice that whatever our biases are, are gonna be in the technologies. And then we need to test more broadly and, and, and explore our assumptions about that technology. Uh, I don't talk about this in The Alchemy of Us, but there have been earlier books that have looked at airbags. Mm -hmm. Airbags were designed for you know very tall men. Mm -hmm. And if you deploy those airbags in populations where people are a little smaller, like in Japan, uh, women could have actually died from those kinds of from the deployment of the airbag. So, so we make some assumptions and we have to we have to probe them. And, and that's what the alchemy of us is all about: telling, asking people to probe technology, probe mm -hmm. the assumptions that are in it, and make sure that it's doing what we actually want it to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, and and was, I, oh if, if it's okay, I'll just jump in. Yeah. I know oh, at ahead. the end of the book, you, you address this, and actually at the beginning of the book. So, um, you know, and we spoke about this um, before when we talked about how you saw on television, um, three to one contact on mm -hmm. PBS, you know, there was a character and you said, that's like me, I can do that, right? Mm -hmm. Right. But, but then as we, we read through the book, it's like, well, Oh, signs of the times. Most I'm looking through all the pictures in the book, and it's all white men. Mm -hmm. And you know, and I guess what can you do? I've seen I've seen people on social media rip apart an author for not in, being more diverse in their inclusion of scientists of history. But it's like, well, it's a little hard uh, to find that diversity. It is hard. It takes much more work. Um, you don't have like when I wrote about Samuel Morse. Uh, I found what he ate on certain days. Like I had so much information about him. <laughs> but for other characters, I really couldn't find, you know, they, they weren't in the newspapers. Who picks up, who we write about, who gets uh, uh, saved and archived. You know, it's very limited. So, um, so I took a different approach. I also, I wanted to make sure that I highlighted people who were for a range of backgrounds. But I also wanted to take down a notch the people that we revere a little bit and show that they're, they're humanness. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to level the playing field that way. Uh, mm -hmm. People that you haven't seen before, raise them up a little bit. And people that you have seen before, show other aspects of them too. Yeah. So, I, but I noticed you did that. And the book really was, I mean, obviously it's about humans, but you really showed the humanity of the, the inventors and the discoverers. Mm -hmm. I find that to be much more fascinating than, uh, 
you know, I went about and I made this. I'm like, what was your motivation? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we heard about S uh, Samuel Morse and his creation of the telegraph and you read old books and you, they talk about how smart he was. But when I found out that he was actually brokenhearted, I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. this is meaningful to me now, mm -hmm. wh why he would be motivated to do that. You made a you made a connection that really worked for me. My background remembers in physics, mm. and uh, when you one of one of my uh, favorite things, and I was happy to mention, is like I'm I'm fascinated by the uh, the uh, all the World Time Zone Conference mm -hmm. uh, in 1883 and the beginning of Standard Time and how the railroads that whole mess of trying to synchronize railroad things and. I'd never made the connection before that at the same time that Einstein was thinking about uh, time dilation effects mm -hmm. and synchronizing clocks that is all part of his uh, conceptual framework for special relativity was the same time a lot of discussion about synchronizing railroad uh, right. schedules was yeah. going on. And it seemed like a revelation to me. I'd, I'd never seen that before. And I thought it was in the air. Yeah, yeah, you have to put it in context. I mean, Einstein, you know, we can't touch him. He's brilliant. But if we know that, you know, people were thinking about time, you can see yeah. more of his motivation. So, yeah. Yeah, it was very nice to see that connection. I really appreciated that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and when I was reading the chapter about Frederick Douglass, I felt like I knew what you were doing here. And, and I really appreciated that you had taken that step that, frankly, a lot of white authors say, well, uh, there's there's no good candidates to put in here and no good stories to tell. Mm. And I was very happy that you wrote about that in your epilogue to the book um, where you said things, I think this is what Joanne may have been thinking about, that every reader needs to see themselves in stories. Right. As one uh, very important observations. Many writers view their work from their own lens and that stories about science and technology must reflect that innovation is universal. Uh, and that the stories are there, but they can be hard to get about for the reasons that you, you just yeah, talked about. Yeah, it's hard. It's very hard to to uncover stories about Caroline Hunter and mm -hmm. and Frederick Douglass, and you know you just don't. But it's important that people see their reflection. One of the things I was also trying to do in the Alchemy of Us is I actually was trying to uh, I was trying to create new myths. Mm -hmm. You know, we know old myths and myths are great because, you know, I can talk to you, Jeff, I can talk to you, Joanne, and I can say, you know, Benjamin Franklin, and you both know about lightning and, you know, mm -hmm. the kite. Mm -hmm. So there's like an instant language that we have. Yeah. Uh, but but myth, myths can also prevent people from wanting to pursue something because they'll be like, well, I'm not that smart. I can't think about lightning and a key <laughs> and a key. So, but, so I wanted to give people other myths. So, you know, here's this young lady who's at a camera company and mm -hmm. she sees something and she says something. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's all you need to do to be a hero. Uh, you don't have to do lofty things and do great experiments. So I was in the process of trying to create new stories for other mm -hmm. people to resonate with. And mm -hmm. amazing things can come about from those, those small Small, Small things, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, that was that was such a such an encouraging story. I really enjoyed that. Right. Well, and I was thinking of you know, like you you just said this new myth. So you know, maybe a chapter would start, and I and there's you know, I I read a lot, so there was a part of me that goes, oh, I know where this is going, and then the chapter did not go where I thought it was going, <laughs> and it would be a new new story, new invention. I you know go, oh yeah, I guess that that must have been invented because it existed, right? right? But I never heard that story, you know, including 
the manufacturing, uh, you know, how did they come up with discs for computers instead of right. punch cards? And, <laughs> right, right, right. And I thought I knew this stuff. I'm like, I didn't know this. So, yeah. Oh, if I you want to explain more to the viewers about this, I thought. Yeah, I love the story. I mean, we kind of take hard disks for granted, but it didn't exist <laughs> at one point, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we used to store information on punch cards. And for the millennials, they were cards that were about that long and they had holes in it. And the holes, where the hole was, that was a yes. Really? And where the hole wasn't, that was a no. So you can think, you know, we're thinking about binary already. But uh, there were so many punch cards that uh, there were on the order of 6 billion of them every year. And it was just not manageable. And this is before thinking about sustainability and trees. This is just like, there's just too many and we don't know yeah. what to do with them. So, yeah. so IBM said, look, we need to figure out another way to store data. And uh, so these scientists, these engineers had to think about how, what exists in nature that has a state of one, uh, you know, a binary state, an A and a B. And so they said, well, let's use magnets. There's a north and a south. And so they're like, well, where do I get uh, magnetic materials so that I can make uh, a new form of data? So, well, iron is um, a magnetic material. Well, where does it exist? Well, it's used in pottery glazes. Let's use that on this disk and see if we can store data. Uh, let's use, uh, if you look at your bottom of your checks, the numbers at the bottom, mm -hmm. that ink is magnetic. Let's try that. So they just tried everything they knew that had iron in it until they eventually found the solution. Uh, and then they had to figure out how to coat it. How yes. do you make a uniform coating? And, uh, you know, they tried to dip it. They tried to paint it. They tried to spray. Nothing was working. So one gentleman, uh, he was my favorite, Jake Hagopian. Yes. He, he got... <laughs> Uh, a disc, he put it, a drill attached to it, and he dumped the paint on the top and just spun it spun like it. spun art. That was so spin awesome. Art. And that became the standard way of uh, creating mm -hmm. hard disks. And that's actually one of the ways that we create silicon chips today, I mean, yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with this spin art. So, uh, so just ingenuity, like I have to solve this problem. Let me try everything to do that. And that's, that was the origin story of the, of the hard disk. And I, I like the little side note about the paint for the Brook, uh, not the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, yeah. Gate Bridge. I'm like, what? I didn't know that. <laughs> right, right. Well, there's a myth that uh, the original hard disk was the same as the Golden Gate Bridge. So I wanted to debunk that because I had I had heard that. And I talked mm -hmm. to some of the old timers that made it and they were very livid about that. It <laughs> <laughs> is not the case. I mean, I had one guy, you know, lecture me for 15 minutes, making sure <laughs> I knew. That. So I said, I get it. I will make sure that I do not write that. And I will say, it, you know. <laughs> And that was the, the the picture of the hard disk and the the five ton, ten megabyte hard disk being loaded into the back of the truck, pushed by five men and things. Right, uh, made me think. And there were several of them that made me think that reminded me that sometimes the first breakthrough demonstration of a concept doesn't look very promising. Is it? No, not at all. Not at all. No, this is true. Yeah. The hard, the first hard disk was like bigger than a Cadillac and, yes. it's, and it could only save enough data for one picture, you know? Yeah. The, the president of IBM were told, you know, saying in the sixties that he saw maybe a market for five computers. In the, right. Ultimately right. and things like that. And, and then, um, but, but you're talking about these and you made the most Interesting comment that afterwards seems obvious. You said the world before computers was different from the world after computers. And pretty much that statement is true for the most of the things you talked about yeah. and the threads that you followed is you know, right. the world was different after the telegraph than it was before the telegraph. And the That's world right. was different after mm, 
plastic photographic uh, film. Yeah. Right, right, right. Before. And right. the phonograph. And, and the phonograph. Yeah. But what, what I tried to get across uh, in The Alchemy of Us is also just showing how that changed. So the telegraph, mm -hmm. I tell you the origin story of the telegraph and why it was created, but then I show how it actually uh, shortened messages yes. in that yeah. it shaped so language. Uh, just like Twitter does today, we think this is new, that Twitter and the internet are the shapers of language. Yes. No, it was the, the telegraph. And words like SCOTUS, POTUS, yep. OK, we're still speaking the language of the telegraph. So I, I, I found that kind of stuff very, very and, neat. And this is one of the, uh, the clear examples that comes close to like how humans and matter affect each other is that you're talking about these inventions and they come into the culture and then the culture changes because of the invention. This was a very good example. People had to pay per word to send these things. So they started right. writing short messages. Right. We, we understand, I think we've even forgotten the origins, but we understand if someone's prose is described as telegraphic, Ah, yes. We know what that means. Yes. Right, and you, right, right, you right. mentioned Ernest Hemingway, who used right. to work for a newspaper, right. who had to use a telegraph, telegraph. to put his stories in, and right. that affected his, his writing. Right. And here we are today with, yes, Twitter and short bites and all sorts of considerations about whether we can even read articles with 1,500 words in them anymore. <laughs> That's right. Well, Much I less 5,000, right? <laughs> yeah. I always say, look at books before the telegraph and look at the mm -hmm. length of their sentences. You know, it was the best of times. <clears throat> it was the worst of times. And that actually is a very long paragraph. But today Page we would, long. Yeah. Today we yeah. would say it's complicated. You know, mm -hmm. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even have the attention span for it. <laughs> to, to add that up. So, well, right. I want to bring up one, one other uh, invention that, well, I guess, sort of made me feel like, oh, they know who I am. Um, as, as a lab scientist, mm. boy, did I use a lot of Pyrex and <clears throat> Corningware, um, right. the borosilicate mm -hmm. glass. Right. And I right. can't imagine, <clears throat> you know, doing what I did without that. Borosilicate glass, which we use in the physics lab too for its right. optical properties and its thermal expansion. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So I mean, it was wonderful to hear about, you know, the full story of the invention and even mm -hmm. And how that brought in this, uh, the wife of an engineer, or was it a chemist? I'm sorry, I'm going to get that mixed up. He, he was a physicist. He was working okay. at Corning. But but again, as smart as he was and as smart as all the physicists were at Corning, <coughs> she came up with the idea. Because yes. uh, they were making this special glass and they were going to make it for headlights and battery jars and a whole bunch of technical things. And she's like, you smart Alex used to, ought to cut up, come up with a baking dish because my yeah. baking dish just broke. And it's very expensive. And, you know, you say you have an indestructible glass, you know, <laughs> let me see how good it is. And it ends up, it was the birth of Pyrex, you know, yeah. court, uh, baking dishes that we know yeah. today. So yeah. um, it was her idea. This is Bessie Littleton. And it also made money for, for courting. Made a ton of money. I mean, uh, right. they, you know, they have different versions. You can get a pie, you can get bread, you can get all different things. I mean, I have a whole bunch of Pyrex dishes. <laughs> Me too. You know? Me too. So, yeah. Not yeah. just the lab, but the house. And, right, right. Yeah. Right. And, and so the beauty of this glass is, of course, it doesn't change shape. Right. Temperature changes and resistant right. to chemical etching. And Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. And it's well, clear. And, Sorry. Very yes. clear. And there are all sorts of implications. You had the little story about uh, problems with reproducibility in temperatures uh, measured for patients oh, and yeah. things. And it was because right. re repeated measurements would distort the glass, the glass which would right. distort the measurements. Right. Uh, and so 
these these things are they have tentacles everywhere all of this technology yeah um, it's a simple you know it's a simple fix but it gave rise to bigger bigger markets much you know, bigger just, yeah yeah as it spreads out <clears throat> i had uh i think because of your discussion at, at the end of the book and because of uh of the notable effort you went to to bring some diversity to some of these stories and create these new myths i'm I've been a big fan for a long time of James Burke and his way of telling stories from right. watching that first Connections show mm -hmm. when it was new. <laughs> I'm that old in the late 70s. <laughs> and I've seen some people, uh, I see this a lot in, in the gay literature. People talk about how sometimes the way, the way that people talk about food sometimes, your dinner needs to be perfectly balanced every time at every meal mm. versus some of us who believe it's like, Oh, if if you're more or less eating a variety of things over the week, you're getting a good balance of things. There's sometimes complaints that um, a particular playwright has produced a new play and doesn't have a, a black lesbian character in it, and they're they don't have enough visibility, which mm -hmm. is true. Mm -hmm. And the question always is, can you fit all of these things in? Can you tell all of these stories? And that's where I started thinking about your book and James Burke, and I got the idea from him that it's awfully hard to tell the story that includes everything. Nobody can do right, that. Right. But that history and the, the way we should come to it is everyone tells an interesting story that follows a thread <clears throat> through history. And then if people read more of those, they start seeing this woven cloth uh, from all of those things. So I felt like you gave us many very, very interesting and nevertheless valid and important threads through mm -hmm. history, and I guess that was an essay question. No, um, no, I got it. I mean, a, a couple of things. <laughs> you know, there are many people I wanted to add, but I always said, who's serving the story? So some mm -hmm. people had had to leave. And I I think also, as I say, when I actually quote Toni Morrison, she, mm -hmm. what, what I took mm -hmm. away from her is that everyone should look back at the old original papers and then mm -hmm. interpret them. Because when we read history books, that's one person's interpretation, and it gets you know mimeographed and copied and rewritten, and it becomes the you know the canon for history. Mm -hmm. And what I had to do is I actually went back and looked at you know what did they look at, and when they were writing their story, and and sometimes I was I said you know why did they ignore this, or why mm -hmm. did they choose this? Um, you know there are many books written about Samuel Morrison. As you read, he wasn't mm -hmm. a particularly nice guy. Well, people just wanted to focus on other things. And I'm like, there is some documentation here where he, this, this needs to come to light yeah. uh, so that we have a, a really a balanced take of him. And also I would go back and I said, well, why wasn't this person written about? Mm -hmm. uh, when I was writing that chapter about time, there are a lot of books about timekeeping, mm -hmm. very thick books. Uh, but I found in one thick book, one sentence that said this woman from the 19th mm -hmm. century started time. Mm -hmm. And I thought she was the most fascinating thing I had read in that thick book. <laughs> so I went to go find out more about her. So what we focus on is really dependent on the person who's writing. And so that's why everyone should take a crack at looking at the original papers and seeing what they come up with. And together, if I read your book and this person's book and the other person's book, we get a better sense of what the history was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. So, well, now, what what prompted you to to write this book. You're a material scientist. <laughs> yeah, I'm a material course. scientist, yeah. It was part of my own evolution. Um, I 
would have written a book where I spoke about one material and kind of told you why it was important. That book was kind of written, um, but I didn't want to do that because for years I've been doing these science explainers and uh, videos about science and materials. And I find them, I find them a lot of fun, but I didn't think it was taking people to the next level, mm. which is to be critical about technology or be critical of materials or feel that materials was for them. Um, when I'm showing them demonstrations, it's more like entertainment. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, I wanted to teach. And so I said, well, let me look at some very old inventions that nobody's really thinking about and that we often don't think have any impact. Mm -hmm. Show how they came to be. Uh, and then the, the more important part was to talk about their impact. So when I was writing this book, if I were writing this book for material scientists, I would have renamed the chapters. It would have been uh, mm -hmm. quartz, copper, steel. You know, that's how I would have mm -hmm. written it. But because I was really trying to embrace a larger audience and make them feel included in material science and show how we were transformed by these materials, I thought verbs, actions, so showing how those actions changed as a result of the technology would be uh, the way to do it. So. Um, so this was pushing me as a material scientist. I could have stayed at just, look, let me show you all about quartz and let me show you all about steel. I never knew about these things. So I was learning as well. And mm -hmm. as I was learning, I said, well, how would I want to make this interesting and important for other people too? And so, uh, so it was part of my own evolution as a material scientist. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool in the steel chapter, you know. You know, how can we make this steel and make it appropriately? But then it just sort of morphs into the story about trains and Lincoln and, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. I thought, well, that was unexpected for me. And I thought, <laughs> very interesting. Mm -hmm. Good. You know? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I learned a lot and I got to interact <laughs> with a lot of uh, researchers and go to a lot of archives and I just felt like a lot, I thought I had known about materials, but I just felt like a lot of gaps were being filled. Mm -hmm. And I had a new appreciation for a history. Like I knew about Lincoln, but I didn't know about his, his funeral train, how he traveled from DC to Illinois and it required these railroad tracks. They were made out of iron at the time, yeah. but I kind of relate him, to, relate him to being a great connector and also how steel was also a great connector. So. Yeah, I knew about his train because I'm in the land of Lincoln. You are. You are. You better. <laughs> we, we are required. It is almost like, yeah, requisite for us. Well, I, I think I know the, the route that he went through to get from Washington to Baltimore, too, because it's still in use today. And it goes not far from my house. Oh, great. Uh, right now, which is, which is kind of interesting. Do you find, uh, and I think I, I'm hearing it in you, and it's something that I discovered about myself. Do you find that you have more enthusiasm and are more inclined to teach enthusiastically about something that you're still learning about? Oh, I think so. Um, if I were, as I'm writing the book, I mean, as I'm learning, I'm writing. That's yeah. great. Maybe five years from now, after knowing it for five years, it'll be a little stale. I won't have, because I would have moved on to something else I'm excited about. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I was writing this book, I would come home, I live with my brother and I would be like, can you believe this yeah. story? Yeah. I found there's a woman who used to sell time. It's like, what? Yes. I'm like, hey, yes. it's like, grab him by the lapel. You've yeah, got to understand how awesome this is. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, I'd call my friends and can you believe that uh, this woman found Pyrex? She's the one who created Pyrex. How come she's not written about? How come it's not named after her? You know, you know, so, uh, 
so I I felt um, I felt like I had this enthusiasm while I was writing the book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's really. And fun. I hope that came across. Uh, you know that. You know that oh, yeah. it was it was a love letter to material science and also to these people. A lot of the people don't even have Wikipedia pages. Mm -hmm. um, you know Warren Marison, who created the first quartz clock. I met. I, I spoke to his daughters. And, really. Uh, that's oh, yeah, actually I, a surprise to me. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't have, you know, Hannibal Goodwin has a, he's a decent one, but I hope that it improves. Uh, yeah. A lot of other people, they just didn't even have Wikipedia pages. Okay, so so we need to start right here, the movement for getting more Wikipedia pages for people who are important but are thought not to be because they have been written out of history. That's right, that's right. Well, I hope that people will look at this book, will start the process and maybe delve a little bit deeper if they like. Yeah, there's lots of source in here for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and another thing I would work on, I thought, do I need to write a book about stupid things that people used to think were true that obviously weren't? Because <laughs> I know about all the naysayers for um, Robert Goddard. I'm three miles from Goddard Space Flight Center, by the oh, way. Oh, I see. Uh, and his first rocket test that all the, I hate to say, physicists were standing around poo-pooing because everybody knows that you can't have rockets in space because there's no air for the rocket to push against. It'll right. never move. Right. And then afterwards now we say, well, obviously it's conservation momentum and has no need for air whatsoever. And I was, I was shocked and thrilled to uh, read when you wrote, legend has it that Stanford's millionaire friends, and mm -hmm. we're going to talk about Moybridge here, mm -hmm. mocked his idea notably that a horse would fall without a foot on the soil. Right. It's like, there's right. no way they could have all four feet off the ground because clearly they'd fall down. Right. Yes. Thought, what a, what an obviously ridiculous idea, but I right. can believe now that some people believed that before they saw it. Well, I, I love, and I love that story. Uh, I heard, heard about that in graduate school when I was, I was a electron microscopist and we hey, were doing me a lot. too. All right. <laughs> with, with cells, of course, and you were with material science. Yeah, well, yeah, same beautiful machine. It is, and it's I, amazing. <laughs> we did a lot of in situ studies about sure. seeing things happen. And, and, and so that was the motivation for this professor to talk about uh, Edward Moybridge. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so he told this story and he actually showed old pictures of how horses were drawn and they kind yes. of looked more like cats. Because yeah. they were like, they, they didn't have the gallop quite right. And so mm -hmm. at, so Stanford said, look, I, I have to get this right. I have all these horses. How does this horse look like mm -hmm. when it's mid gallop? Are all the feet off the ground? Unsupported transport is a mm -hmm. transit as it was called. Yeah. yeah. So we hired this photographer to take these pictures. And, uh, and, and the thing is that while I was writing this book, there are plenty of books about Stanford and Edward Mybridge. I went to where he lived, which is in England, Kingston. Yeah. Uh, and they have some of his old photographs there. Huh. So I got to hold some of the glass photos oh. and, and the one that's in the book, I actually held and, you know, I had, I was like, I can't believe I'm holding this thing. Uh, and uh, they scanned it for me and, and, and now it's in the book. Two things that stood out in that, that little bit about Moybridge, who is not really the focus, but is, a, is a, an important milestone along the way mm -hmm. was, uh, I was so interested in hearing how his name mutated as he yeah. moved from England <laughs> and uh, went through a couple of years of life. And uh, despite all that he did for photographic things where we see the picture, mm -hmm. the really, really, really important thing I think you pointed out that he gave us was a shutter. Yes, yes. that's right. That's right. The shutter. Um, 
That was and amazing. I've never seen that before. Yeah, I well, we hear about the photograph, but I spent a lot mm -hmm. of time in the archives and I read all these legal documents and there was a lot of contention of if he made the camera or not because this gentleman yeah. Isaacs worked mm -hmm. for uh, Stanford and so Stanford said, no, it's mine because he works for me. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to learn a lot about that shutter, but yeah, well, you know, shutters for now, they, they're pretty complex, but all they did is they just had slats that moved yeah. very, very quickly, but it's, it's very clever. It's a very, it clever was a, idea. a very clever resolution. Uh, and in start. fact, shutters <laughs> these days are imitation because they're just scans on the CCD, mm. uh, which they're like pseudo shutters, but yet are, we still expect our phones to make a shutter click. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> an That's odd right. vestigial feature. But. That's right. The physical world, even though we're fully in the digital world. Yeah. But I, I really enjoyed going. I mean, I you were talking about Goddard. Um, mm -hmm. He was also in the same archives that I went to for uh, Jake Hagopian, the, the mm -hmm. hard disk guy. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that um, I hope that people read The Alchemy of Us, but I hope that they just look at old archives near them, you know, mm -hmm. in their libraries, in their universities that are nearby you're going to find a ton of stuff. It's not on Google and right. it's amazing. And you get to yeah. know it. You may be one of the first people to know it and then you get to share it sort of like what I, what I had done. And if they like that idea and don't know where to start, you put it all in the back of, yeah, of that the, annotated. the sources and the notes. <laughs> right. Which, I had a fun time writing that. Yeah. The, the annotated bibliography. I always appreciate having the, uh, the end matter as it's called and yeah. uh, all of the sources and things because they lead to so many other other discoveries. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I, I find it very, I read so much nonfiction. I find it very weird when I'm reading fiction and the last <laughs> page of the book is the last page of the book. <laughs> I'm like, where's all the references, right? That's right. The reference is all up here. That's right. I made it up. Um, I made it up, yeah. So um, actually, um, speaking of referencing, uh, you have a lot of photos in your book. Yeah. A lot yeah. of photos in your book. Right. And right. I saw a tweet that you were going to discuss these photos um, next week on Twitter. So people should tune in and take a look and see what you talk about, um, whether right. they've seen the photos or not. But yeah, well, there's a lot to talk about with photos in a book. Mm -hmm. I understand it, it costs money to it add a lot of money to a book. And it's mm -hmm. like, does the publisher do that? Do you do that? Uh -huh. who, who pays for this? Because yeah. Um, right, right. Well, I would, uh, there's 102 photos in the book and I would list it as newbie mistake, number one. Uh, <laughs> now I know why most books don't have a lot of pictures. Have photos, in yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're very expensive. Uh, there's, there's organizations that their business model is about selling pictures, uh, licensing the pictures, and they're to the tune of a couple of hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so thousands of dollars were spent on uh, the images and, uh, and that is the author's responsibility mm -hmm. okay. to do that. I was very fortunate because uh, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation gave me a grant. I applied mm -hmm. for a grant and I said, I have, these, I have this book. There are some beautiful photos out there. I would like to be able to include them in the book. And so they helped me with that. They supported me with that. That's nice. Uh, yeah, it was fantastic. So, and some of these photos, I, when I look at the photos, I'm just going to grab a copy of my book. Mm -hmm. there's, there's about a hundred of them. I look at it. To me, it's like a family album because mm -hmm. I can say, oh, I remember that picture. I almost mm -hmm. didn't get that picture because the government shut down. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, you know, I remember, oh, yeah, here, here is a picture of, I don't know if you can see that, but we were just talking about the my, shutters. The, my, shutter. the shutters yeah. are there and yep. my bridge, that 
that was actually in my hand, that, that image. Yeah. Um, finding this woman, this is Caroline Hunter. Mm -hmm. uh, she, this is a picture from 1971. I was doing a lot of research to find her and I, I met her, but here oh. she now is a 65 year old woman and I want right. a picture of her back then. Right. And I wrote her and then I could never get another response. So, you know, she's very, very busy. So I found an old paper from England, The Guardian, from 1971, yeah. and I wrote them. I said, do you happen to have this picture? <laughs> I know this is crazy, from 1971, and boom, they had it. Nice. So, so, uh, so when you're writing a book, you're spending a lot of time in the archives writing the prose, but then you also have to be a curator of all these pictures. And make sure that they tell a story too. Uh, you know, you may want to see what some of these people look like, or what they made, mm -hmm. or or how they interacted with each other. Uh, and that takes a that takes an, another part of your brain, but I think it's also an important part of the book. So, uh, talk, since you kind of mentioned it, talk a little bit more about the mechanics and how you locate the archives and and what you do, what it's like to go there and and look for things, how you track down this information and you know, these exciting surprises of some person in the the morgue at the Guardian knowing where that picture is. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. That's you, you know exactly what it's called. Well, if you're looking for someone who's famous, you can read their biography. And at the end, as we talked about the end notes, you'll mm -hmm. find information of where the original archives are located. So for Samuel Morse, let's give him an example. A lot of his mm -hmm. materials are in the Library of Congress but he, some of his materials are at Yale and I happen to live in New Haven. So that was wonderful. So I got to see mm -hmm. some things that most other people don't take the time up to come to Yale to, to look at. His wife was also buried in the Yale cemetery. And so oh. I took a picture of her. And so that's also included in the book because she's part of the origin story for, for the book. Uh, but now things are a little easier in terms of finding the archives. There's this wonderful website, I think it's called Archive Grid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You type nice. that in and type in, let's say I want to learn about George, Gordon Teal, who was uh, mm -hmm. instrumental in creating the transistor. Mm -hmm. I typed in his name, boop, Baylor University popped up. <laughs> so I, I knew he had materials at Bell Labs archives because I had been there, but mm -hmm. they yeah. just had his notebooks, but his papers were at his alma mater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so I reached out to them. They're like, yes, we indeed have his papers. And uh, they said, oh, by the way, do, we do have a small grant, uh, a travel grant to come out and see his papers. And oh. I said, okay. Ooh. Wow, wow. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so they covered the, you know, the travel and the three nights that I needed to be in that wonderful library. And I scanned everything. My process is uh, my phone. I have an old mm -hmm. phone. I just, there's a PDF generator on here. And I yeah. would just. Magic. Yeah. <clears throat> and then I would go print that out. And then I would come to my library at home and just you know, read mm -hmm. and read mm -hmm. and read. So, uh, so that was my process. And then again, uh, when I was writing the stories, they really had to be a story, even though it's details, it's like yeah. you have to have an inciting incident, a climax, and then there's some kind of mm -hmm. resolution to them uh, just to keep people going. Uh, some, you know, flow, uh, but, all, but, you know, mostly about highlighting materials, but materials are embedded in a story. Yeah, it was like excellent. I loved I loved every story. I think though the Pyrex one was my favorite. So great. Well, those little <laughs> extra details help too because you you cleared up some things for me. Not only the revelation about Einstein and synchronizing clocks, yeah. but there was a time uh, in the last 
few years, three years maybe, when uh, we were at the National Gallery. Mm -hmm. And we come out into a small alcove gallery and there was this very large painting of a style that was popular at the time of a mass of people as though they were in a, a yes. senate of some sort, a mm -hmm. gathering. Mm -hmm. And we read the little card and it said Samuel F. Morse. And we said, what an amazing coincidence that there are mm. two Samuel Morses because <laughs> this couldn't possibly be the right. telegraph guy. Right. And yet to find out that he started life as a painter. A painter. And that was the same sample. It's, it's amazing. Even on the Antiques Roadshow, they'll say, hey, I have this painting. It says F.B. Morris. Is, it, yeah. is, is this the same guy? And they're like, yeah, it's him. Because that's what he did for a living. So, And he was he was good at it. He was very good. Apparently it bored him to tears, too. But He didn't like taking pictures of people. And, and selfies were pop. You know, portraiture was popular yes. then. He wanted to do magnificent, you know, scenes. And nobody wanted that. Well, this was. It was, <laughs> yeah, a magnificent scene. And. He's in the National Gallery now, so yeah, that's, there are worse things than that. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. A big, yeah. if we need a a big topic, and part of this is is what happens with time and our perception, because I think if you mention railroads these days, most people go, yeah, it's useful for you know getting lettuce from this from the West Coast right. to other places. But we think of it as old technology and not really very uh, much of a, of a contributor to cultural affairs. And we don't know what it did and how it was a major contribution. And the fact that you sort of used to ignite some of that is in the early 1800s. And I made the notes that this is before rail transport was popular. Mm -hmm. In the early 1800s, traveling from New York City to Washington, D.C., took five days by stagecoach. <laughs> yeah. And the stagecoach was not comfortable. No. I mean, you're just, you're like this, and it's for, for hours, five. 18 hours. Five know? days, yeah. Go get get in at 10 o'clock at night. They come and say, it's three in the morning. It's time to get ready to go. Right, right. Uh, for five days. Five days. And so just, when you traveled, you would make sure you would stay there for a month or so to make it right. worth the five days. Yeah. You're not going to just pop back. <laughs> we, do, we do that in two hours by rail these days. Right, um, right. Yeah, so the world shrunk with, the, with rails. Amazingly yeah. so. And that... It's hard to picture. You gave us you gave us some good things of picturing how, as the world was shrinking, uh, with that and with communication uh, from the uh, telegraph that went along with it, because telegraph lines often ran on railway rights of way. Right. Mm -hmm. right. That all of that shrinkage had profound cultural changes uh, that came with it that now are like so profound and so natural that we don't even know them or that those are really good stories to hear yeah too. well we're so accustomed to memes moving across the country in a course of a day or two yeah. and that's made possible by the internet yeah. but before uh before the railroads let's say you and i we're related i move away 60 miles you're probably not going to see me for a long long time if ever you if know ever. that's that was just too far mm -hmm. so it's amazing how uh we just take for granted um how these ways, yeah, that's right, instantaneous and ways of Most moving. people in those days would never move. They'd spend their life within 15 mile radius of where they were born. That's right, that's right. Uh, 
yeah, unless they were a bit intrepid and headed west or something like that. Right, yeah. and that was huge. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, in which case, yes, it took twenty days to do that by stagecoach or something. Mm -hmm, that was mm -hmm. a major event, and it's like, why did all those people die going west on on their <laughs> their uh, covered wagons and things? It's like there was no road. There was no road. <laughs> there were no, there were no just... gas stations. That's there was right. Little food. There were wild food? animals. That's right. That's right. They were just out wilderness. It was hard stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh. But you know, we don't think about steel now. No. But it it connected us in new ways. Uh, mm -hmm. It made it possible for us to have skyscrapers, things that we just kind of take for granted. Like we're just born into this, and we think, oh, yeah. well, this is how it was. But always you know, has been. Always has been. But yeah. and so sometimes, sometimes we feel bad about forgetting those stories. But then the other side of that is what can you do except forget them? We can't carry all those stories all the time as things keep changing and culture right. keeps transforming and we become what we are now. So right. you know, writing the book, I guess, is a key contribution to, well, to the external memory that you talked about. Of, well, and it's great because we get to discover or rediscover mm -hmm. uh, right. these things um, by, you know, people writing great books like this. Make new connections. Make I'm very fond of all the new connections that come along. Well, that's why I call it the alchemy of us, because it's really mm -hmm. a story about us, how we got here. You know, just a couple of generations ago, things looked a little differently, but those technologies that they made made where we are today. And as we think about things in the future, you know, how do we want to make the future? We should be a little bit more deliberate in our decisions. You know, we were just talking about bias and, you know, what we think are what's important that we think should carry over to the future, we should start thinking about that because it could be a small invention, just like the light bulb. We see that that shaped us. Well, something small we do now will also shape the future. And so it may seem tiny, but it's actually it could be monumental. And who, who remembers even, I've heard about in a couple of other places, but what segmented sleeping Right. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Who has even heard of that? And yet, before the invention of the light bulb, it was a universal phenomenon. I know. And then, after the invention of artificial lighting, it disappeared remarkably quickly. Right. Right. Well, yeah. I really was intrigued with that story. I, in the chapter about time, I talk about mm -hmm. how our sleep used to be different before the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. We slept in two segments, three and a half hours, an hour break where we were awake, and then three and a half hours. Mm -hmm. The reason why I found that fascinating is because we're in the midst of what the New York Times calls the, the sleep industrial complex. Mm -hmm. If you look on television, you'll see mattresses and pillows and pajamas and everything to help you with our, with our sleep. <laughs> Special alarm clocks. Special alarm, everything. But and yet none of us say we sleep well. We don't sleep well. But the thing is that we, we, we might, it's because we used to sleep a little differently. Waking up in the, in the middle of the night was not a problem. So right. now when we wake up in the middle of the night, we're like, oh, I have insomnia. There's something yeah. wrong with me. No, that's that's actually a natural way of sleeping. So I just wanted to make people aware that the way we sleep now is not the way we always sleep so that you can feel a little bit and more yet, empowered. It's very helpful to know about that because if you read novels from before 1900, mm -hmm. the assumption of the novel writer is that you know that that happens when they make an oblique reference to somebody's uh, right. midnight habits or something that will confound modern readers if they're not aware of that right, right. that little story and that little connection. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. to think that that this invention of the light bulb and how quickly in, uh, lighting became uh, widespread 
and then how how quickly it changed things and how we have graveyard shifts and industry <laughs> and everything the, mm -hmm. it's a vast culture and lights change. are everywhere everywhere you know yeah. even even on our phones but i mean the inventors who created the electric light they were really trying to solve one problem which was to push back the darkness mm -hmm. they didn't know that our bodies get messages about what mode to be in daytime mm -hmm. or nighttime based on the lights that's only been discovered in the 21st century yes. so so you know so we're still learning about ourselves we thought that we knew everything about the eye but the eye actually said nope i got one more secret uh, i'm a detector right. and i at put the body <laughs> yeah at least one more yeah there could be others you know so so there's still more profound things. I think I don't think it was in your book this time. I think it was a paper I saw mm -hmm. where people are, were talking about light pollution and how many people have never seen the Milky Way. Right, right. Yeah. And now yeah. people are making some movement to try to protect the night sky. That's right. That's from, right. From uh, artificial lighting so that mm -hmm. we might someday see more stars and the Milky Way again. And I have because I, I spent a time in in Montana and there've been mm -hmm. other places where I've been where dark used to exist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that's the, the another night sky huge is, cultural it's, change. It's foreign to a lot of people, the night sky, yeah. you know, and it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. People almost used to have as, it all the time. Almost as foreign as uh, farm animals, uh, which used to be, I mean, everybody. I've, What's a farm I've, animal? I've, <laughs> I'm just teasing. I've commute, communed with a chicken before, but I don't think that's something that a lot of people have done. No, no. Well, if you ask children, you know, where does food come from? They'll say the yeah. supermarkets. Yeah. 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 Oh good, my. Good. yeah. So, yeah, I spent uh, a couple of years writing this book and was just trying to create a new connection to technology. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people want to do whiz bang. Hey, isn't this exciting? But I really just wanted it to feel like it was a story about our own evolution. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we make stuff all the time. And mm -hmm. so uh, this is a story where we see how things evolved. And I highlight the materials that were involved because, you know, I'm coming from material mm -hmm. science lens. Right. But I also I feel that this book is for many people. It uh, mm -hmm. doesn't matter what their background is, background right. is because mm -hmm. I really use storytelling. When it I'm is. It's a, it's a very cultural thing. And I, I uh, one of the audience that really enjoy these uh, these connections that you've made and some of them now have affected me so that I'm a different person now after I've read your book than I was before I read your book. Well, that is a, nice. the greatest wow. endorsement. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It seems, it seems perfectly in line with the title. So yes. <laughs> Books. Well, the, uh, Anissa talked about external memory, uh, mm. which existed before digital uh, devices and how we're able to remember more because of books and we're able to learn more and we're able to transmit things. And um, Karl Popper, one of my favorite philosophers, used to have the had the notion that ideas actually had an existence. This is very similar to the idea of memes. Mm. It had an existence that was independent of, of humans. And I sort of believe that because I'm a big fan of libraries. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. I love going to the library or getting new books because I feel like there's this potential for all this new stuff that I don't know yet, but I will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and speaking of, of books and publishing and all these things, so you just, you went ahead and said, let's just publish the book or your publisher said, let's just publish it despite everything that's going on right now. People and, need books. Yeah. People, particularly now, particularly now. And uh, it also, you know, I've, I've worked on it for many years 
Uh, there's a lot of people at the MIT Press who have been working on this for many months to get this going. And, yeah. you know, we just have to push ahead. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, we, we, we had talked briefly that, uh, beforehand that, yeah, a lot of books, if people say, well, I don't want to release it now, <clears> they're <throat> going to be competing with everybody else who That's thought right. the same thing. And so <laughs> come September... Will be, yeah. will be. There'll be such an abundance of books, we won't know what to choose. So, in a way, right. you help yourself stand out. I well, hope so, and and we'll also be very busy with elections. There's, we're going to be very yeah. distracted. Yeah. So, uh, and I think people need a good book, and uh, you yeah. can get it electronically right that's away. Right. That's uh, right. You know, audio. That's right. It's not connected to. Is the, the distribution system is is intact, but the book may come a little slower if you order it. Mm -hmm. But you can you can read it right away, and or we can. They can tune into your shows and hear a lot about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quite a bit about it. But, and we're uh, talking about the fast pace of cultural change and things. It can be a whirlwind sometimes because the last time that Joanna and I talked to each other, we were not sequestered in our houses. We were not social distancing. <laughs> uh, things have changed immensely in a very short time. Absolutely. Uh, and we don't know yet what the consequences are. And that's, that's kind of interesting. It's well, scary so too, but it's, it's interesting as well. So I don't know about you, but being sorry. Oh, I was just going to ask you. You're going to be uh, presenting about your book in many right. venues uh, A virtually. April April fourteenth at twelve thirty uh, Eastern. I'll be giving a virtual talk uh, oh. through MIT Press Live, oh. and uh, there may be other occasions, but that's the one that's coming up right away. Okay. And uh, but what what I was also going to say is that in the book I talk about how time felt differently before we had clocks. And I don't know about you, but time feels differently now that I'm sequestered. You know, yes. things are a little slower. You know, I, I'm, I'm not as effective or as productive as I used to be. So, yeah. um, you know, we feel maybe, we feel briefly out of sync with our routines and absolutely. how the world is running. Right. So so chapter one is very apt right yes. now <laughs> of this book. So, yeah. Well, um, you know, is there anything else that uh, we didn't cover that you wanted to make sure to, to mention while you're here? Well, I, I think that uh, if I were to tell people more about the alchemy of us, it's about how humans and matter transform one another. Uh, but you're also going to find out some cool things about people <laughs> that you never heard about. Uh, a, late, a lady who sold time, uh, a mortician who pointed us in the direction of the computer. You know, I, I just found that fascinating. And uh, some stories that we ought to be telling also about technologies, as we mentioned about Polaroid and, and how mm -hmm. uh, things that we love, technology that we love can be used for things that we don't love. Um, so I hope that uh, people will pick up the book and learn a little bit more about technology, but also see how it relates in terms of history and the context and, and how those technologies do shape us. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was, it was a fantastic book. Thank and you. I'm sure Jeff and I are both here to say, yeah, go ahead and pick it up in whatever form you are able to <laughs> give it a read. Anissa, it's so wonderful to have you here today. Thank you for joining us and good luck. I hope people read it far and wide. Well, thank you. Thanks to both of you. And I hope that you stay well and stay safe. Thank you. Indeed, everybody out there. That's what we wish. So. Yeah. All right. Until next time, everybody. This is Read Science. Bye-bye.